FM Breakfast Show with the Double L Team, Lyle and Lawson. Welcome everybody, you're listening on 87.6, or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are, positively different radio, in the morning, we are about to give a shout out to some of our listeners, let's see who we've got here this morning that we can give a shout out to today, let's talk to, well, Grindelwald in Tasmania, uh, on 88.0, Capel in Western Australia, also on 88. Point zero and Kilcoy in Queensland mm. listening on 88.0. So a bunch of 88s there this morning. And my mum. Oh, your mum. Because I love her and she's great. Where is your mum these days? She She's getting around. She actually, she studies at Newcastle Uni. Yep. I work there. I meet up with her. Actually, usually on Thursdays, she comes in here for a class and we get lunch together. It's really cute. Uh, she was traveling around Australia and doing all kinds of wild things. Yes. But yeah, she's she decided like, to come back to Newcastle. She's in her last semester of her MBA and soon she'll get that and just be an absolute mad lad and just be doing all the business things. So that's pretty awesome. Good, good for her. Go shout out, shout out my mum. What are you yeah. grateful for this morning, Lyle? Ooh, let me think. What am I grateful for this morning? I got to see my granddaughter yesterday <laughs> and producer Shell didn't. So I'm just going to rub that oh, in. Oh, wow. Okay, we have some some couples some tension com- here, some marital here. friction. Yeah, competition. <laughs> She's amazing. Your granddaughter? She's one. Uh-huh. And she loves her pop. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so fun. You know, I don't have any grandchildren. That's just sad, Lawson. That's just sad. But, I, I, just, I just feel bad for you. But, you know, I have a future. You have to have children before you have grandchildren. <laughs> You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. As we get started, let's have a question for our quiz. A question for our quiz. What was the blood relationship of Esther and Mordecai? 0491-064-669 is the number to call or text if you know the answer to that one. If you do, you'll go into the draw to win the Revive Cafe Cookbook 3 and 4, both of these amazing awesome cookbooks that you'll get absolutely for free, provided that you win the draw. And how do you get in the draw? You answer the questions correctly. Again, that question was, what was the blood relationship of Esther and Mordecai? 0491-064-669. If you want any terms and conditions in regards to our quiz, you can head to our website, faithfm.com.au. But again, that number was 0491-064-669. Nine. Mm, here's a piece of interesting trivia for you. Do you know how Mordecai is pronounced in Persian? Mordecai? Maduka. Mad- <laughs> Maduka. Maduka. And he's well attested to in secular history. Wow. Yes. Not so much Esther, but definitely Mordecai or Maduka. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's uh, jump into some positively different news this morning. Lyle, you are going to love this story. Okay. It's all about... The removal of invasive species. Yes. It's just like yes. Lyle's favorite topic in the yes. whole wide world. And Let's also, it. it's about my favorite animal, penguins. Okay. So this is the story. Penguins are not an invasive species. No, I know, but it's about, saving the, it's about saving the penguins okay. from the invasive species. Yes. So this is all about Macquarie Island, which is an island near Antarctica. They have invasive species on Macquarie yes. Island. Who took? Who was? Who did that? Literally, dumb sailors. Okay, dumb sailors That's in the eighteen hundreds come to Macquarie Island with, with a bunch of no, with a bunch of cats, okay. a bunch of rats, 
and a bunch of mice. Okay. Yep. And rabbits. They show up. Rabbits as well. Cats, rats, rabbits, and mice. How do rabbits survive down there? So cold. They grow hair. Anyways, they rock up in Macquarie Island, and what used to be vegetation that they said was head height and thick yes. is just completely being decimated by that Nudian. population, just uh-huh. it, to the point where it's just Wrecked. a big rock like mm-hmm. Macquarie Island. And, you know, there are occasionally penguins hanging out there, but particularly in the 2000s when you had an incredibly large amount of invasive species there. You know, the the penguins and other natural birds... Just like, stay away. Just like, no, why would we go there? It's cats. It's don't terrible. Go. Yeah, that's right. They don't like cats. They're like, we're not, we're not going to go hang out with them. But this prompted a $24 million effort by... Actually, specifically Tasmania. Go, in, go in, Tasmania. And the Australian government. Now they're down on Macquarie Island, they need to do it next on Bruni Island. But anyway... <laughs> So they, they show up to Macquarie Island and they have a team headed by a lady named Melissa Hutton yes. and her dog Wags. And Wags is a Rottweiler. Who tracks cats. Tracks cats and birds. Well, invasive birds. Cats, birds, rats, mice and rabbits. Okay, but one dog and one... Yeah, but this was like a team. Okay, okay. but it was headed by them. So this right. is a team of dogs. And so they rock up there in 2007, and as of 2014, they declared the island free of invasive species. That is off the charts. So in seven years, they got it down. In fact, they have a photo of them, of Wags, the dog, and Melissa, the handler of the dog, holding the last rodent on Macquarie Island. That's wild. So this is amazing, right? So Wags has just been living his best life down there. He oh, just gets to go totally. hunting, hunting every day. It's just like... Totally. It's amazing. But then, following all of this, which is so awesome... So what year was that again? That was 2014. Okay. It's now 2022. Yes. And they have pictures of Melissa and Wags hanging out down there with just literally thousands of penguins... On the, the penguins oh, have found out, yep, the cats are gone. The Let's cats go are back. gone. Let's go hang out. They're standing on grassy marshland. It's like beautiful again. Nature is healing from the cats. And rats. And rats and mice and rabbits. And it's just it's just the ultimate conservation success story. That's amazing. That has positively affected my favourite animal. Next, they need to do Bruni Island, Mariah Island, then go some after some of the big ones like Flinders Island, King Island. Mm. Yeah, they got out. Oh, there's that really big island they need to get to, Australia. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. Yes. Let's That's do it. Wants, anyway. Let's do it. Just, just get rid of the cats, rats, and mice. Yeah, no, so this is amazing news. And it also, like, yeah... I just, I, like, the, the part that touches my heart, obviously, is the fact that they've saved the penguins, you know, that the penguins are back. It's like your favourite animal. Literally it? my favourite animal. And they have this photo of them standing with all the penguins, and I'm like, how do I get included in that? It's you like, go to Macquarie Island. Yeah, exactly. But now I can't, because, you know, it'll actually be pretty and nice and worthwhile going. But there's no tourist service to Macquarie Island. Yeah, I don't think so. So, you know what, I'm just going to get a rowboat. Nah, I'm going to sailboat. Nah. Well, like it. I'll, I'll launch off the... What's the boat that goes between here and, like, Melbourne and Tasmania? The um, the uh, the ferry. The ferry, yeah. Yes. What's that called? It's called... There's a, it's got a name, right? The Spirit does. something? Yeah. Yes, Spirit of Tasmania. Spirit of Tasmania. Yeah, I'll one, launch one off two. the Spirit of Tasmania and head down to Macquarie Island and hang out, you know. 
I just bought launch off with uh, rocket, <laughs> some kind of vessel. <laughs> oh, you know, okay. Okay. I, I have a, I have, you know, I bought a nice Kathmandu jacket recently, so I won't get cold. You're good, you're good to go. I, I'm, I'm gonna go down there and live my best life, hang out with the penguins. So it's so cool. I love this story. Uh, okay, we have another story here. This is about one of my favorite foods. It's about grapes, Lyle. Grapes are the best fruit, and you can't tell me otherwise. Like, it's just true. Cool. Would you agree? Raspberries are the best fruit. Uh, raspberries are pretty nice. Grapes are decent. But they're not a grape. Grapes are fantastic. What's, ra- ra- what's your favorite type of grape? Uh, sultana grapes. Oh. <laughs> okay, sultanas but are before nice. they get turned into sultanas. Uh. Sultana grapes, before they get turned into sultanas, they're little itty-bitty grapes, and they're so nice. Mm. Well, I I am a big fan of white grapes, personally. In fact, I like all grapes. White grapes, black grapes, all the the different grapes on the grapes. I've never seen a white grape. The green ones. Oh, the white white grapes that are green. They call them white grapes. I'll never forget we were uh, picking uh, blackberries one time Mm. with some people who, some tourists from Italy Mm. who were learning English. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're picking blackberries and we told them, don't pick the red ones because they're green. Mm. Oh. <laughs> Dude, that's actually, that actually reminds me. So if, if you personally know a Japanese person, ask them which light is the one to go on when you stop in traffic. And they will tell you it's the blue light. Even though it's green and they know it's green, to them it's blue. Like it's culturally blue. Really? Even though it's green, yeah. And it's really? like, well, why did this start? Because then we, like, try and work it out, and I always talk to Japanese people about it. I'm like, okay, so are my pants blue or green? They're like, oh, they're, they're green. The grass? The grass is green. I'm like, the light, it's blue. I'm like, why is that? And that was because when traffic lights first got installed in Japan, in Tokyo, they incorrectly labeled the go light as blue, even though it was green. And so they called... The green light, blue. They do the same thing in South Korea. This is, this is making my head hurt. It's terrible. Like, it's, <laughs> it's so confusing. Also, the sun is red because the sun on the flag is red because the flag, the Japanese flag yes, is a big yes, sun. So they're like, yes. yeah, no, they look outside and we see like a yellow orange sun. They're like, yeah, it's red. And it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> they're like, yes, it is. Like, if you're a kid in class and you're drawing a sun, you're using a red pencil because the sun is red. So if you're drawing a traffic light, do you use a blue pencil or do you just draw it green and call it blue? You draw it green and call it blue. And you, but you call it, you draw the sun red and call it red. That's right, even though it's not. It's Well, maybe the sun self-identifies as being red. It's confusing. Anyway, back to grapes. You can't, I, you can't <laughs> argue with that. You can't dispute that. Maybe it's it's its own it's its own truth. It is. It is. The sun isn't sentient, but if it was, it probably it has its own truth. It has its own truth. That's right. Yes. Anyways, back to uh, back to grapes. There was a big study done that essentially found that eating grapes enables a gene in our body that can just completely overcomes the the negatives of eating a bad diet. And so, like the ultimate outcome here isn't then to eat a bad diet and eat grapes, even though you can do that, as the study is suggesting. But just eat grapes. Yes, they're good for you. They're fantastic for you. And they, like, the, one of the big places where they were researchers is, is in regards to fatty liver. You, they were like, if you want to overcome any kinds of liver problems, eat grapes. Not fermented, just regular old grapes. Eat them frozen. Frozen grapes. That's the best in summertime. It's amazing. Wow. 
You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. And our next question for the quiz is, what did the seven sons of Sceva attempt to do? If you know the answer, 0491-064-669 is the number to call. If you call at that number and you answer correctly, you'll go in the draw to win the prize, which this week is the Revive Cafe Cookbooks Volumes 3 and 4 by Jeremy Dixon. These are incredible, amazing cookbooks in which you can find out how to make vegan, tasty, and healthy, and relatively easy to make food, which will be great for you. So again, 0491-064-669 is the number to call or text. That question was, what did the seven sons of Skiva attempt to do? And right now on the phone, we have the author of our prize books. That is Jeremy Dixon. Jeremy, are you here with us? I am. Good to hear from you. Yes, and we love having you on the show and talking about all things amazing, awesome food and how we can make great food, healthy food, awesome, amazing food. Like, I know I already said that, but I just leave every one of these conversations salivating because of how great everything that you describe sounds. And so, I got to ask you, what is the topic that we're talking about today? Well, I want to talk about the fact that presentation is everything and how to make your dishes look awesome. Okay, presentation is everything. Wow, okay, yep. okay. So people people do eat with their eyes. You kind of, when you hit a dish or anything in life, so your first impression, whether it's of a person or a food or whatever, you kind of, you sum it up in the first three seconds. So wow. when you make your food and present it, um, just a few little seconds, literally seconds to do a few little presentation tips can change a dish from looking ugly and bland to looking amazing and something you want to eat. Okay, so I, I have a question to ask in that regard in terms of like consumer psychology. If it looks gross but someone eats it and it's actually really nice, will they still think it tastes bad? <laughs> I don't have any exact research to prove it either way. Mm. I mean, you can still enjoy a dish, but the whole it's the whole experience. Eating is not just about mm. the food hitting your tongue. I mean, that is a very important part of it, but it's all about, you know, the conversation, the people around you, how it looks, how you eat it, the atmosphere. Everything kind of mm. contributes to, you know, your meal being an enjoyable occasion. Mm. And, um, you know, having those kind of moments with people where you're, you know, breaking bread, like in the Bible, Mm. where you're doing these type of things, eating over food and having conversations, that's where the the best parts of life happen. So if you can whiz up your food and make it look a little bit better, it kind of just adds to that whole experience. Oh, amazing. Well, I guess all I have to ask now is (laughs) what can we do? How do we make our food look (laughs) amazing? Yes, yeah, so generally products by default often come out looking brown and flat. The more you cook things, the color goes out of them. Mm. Um, when you put things on a plate, if they go runny, they kind of spread everywhere. Mm. And that generally doesn't look very, really good. So what I reckon, and often when you, you probably do, you've cooked something, you put your heart and soul into producing this wonderful dish, and you throw it on the plate and you look at it and go, that does not do justice to the time I've just put in and sweated over making this taste amazing. Oh. Um, and also, also sometimes you can have a disaster of a dish. It just doesn't turn out right, looks sloppy, thick, ugly, or whatever. And you can recover that with some simple tips. Wow. This actually, I think I need this because I often feel that way. You know, I'll cook up an amazing fried rice in the wok to 
serve to my friends and I'm like, oh, this tastes incredible. I use the best ingredients. Like, this is going to be amazing. But and then it just kind of looks like gross fried rice. <laughs> like, uh, it, it doesn't look gross, but it just kind of, it looks just like a big blob of rice. And I'm like, oh, how do I make this look amazing? Yeah. Exactly. So basically, presentation comes to a, few, to a few things, and probably the number one number starting tip, the number one thing that can probably improve everyone's cooking, presentation, taste, everything is fresh herbs: mm. parsley, coriander, mint, basil. Chopping it fine, drizzling it over, sprinkling it over the dish mm-hmm. can make a massive difference. The green is probably your secret color that is going to transform most dishes. I'm. You know what's funny? I'm currently looking at the cover of Revive Cafe Cookbook Volume 4 and on pretty much everything here except you've got like a fruit platter part of it, there is some kind of herb sprinkled over it. So I can definitely see that you practice this. Yeah, exactly. And it's flavour as well. But yeah, green is probably the biggest secret to turning turning stuff. So just just having some... And fresh herbs, you can buy this in the supermarket, but just uh, spring's coming on shortly. Now's the time to start planting them shortly. Mm. Um, you know, in the summer, you can have a garden full of herbs costing you virtually nothing. Mm. And going out to the garden and just taking a handful of something and throwing it over a meal can just, even just that alone, if that's all you remember today, just get some fresh herbs, will transform the presentation of your dishes. Oh, fantastic. So you've got your fresh herbs, you've got your pile of slop, you chuck your fresh herbs on it, and <laughs> all of a sudden it's beautiful. Is that what we're saying? Exactly, yeah, pretty much can do. There's lots of other things as well. So another another thing that really works well is uh, seeds and nuts. Mm. So, for example, peanuts, sesame seeds, slivered almonds, hazelnuts, and often rather than putting a whole, like, hazelnut on, just kind of chopping it on a board so you've kind of got some hazelnut dust floating around, just kind of sprinkling that on kind of adds an extra kind of dimension and a bit of flavor, but also the presentation as well. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, um, I can really attest to sesame seeds, dude. You can chuck them in anything and all of a sudden it just looks like 10 times more gourmet. Exactly, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and also when, when you are when you are putting these garnishes on, don't just put them in the middle of the food. You know, scatter them around the plate as well. Um, so it just on the, on, the, on the food and around on the plate kind of adds to the whole dimension, mm. um, which is really cool. Um, another few ingredients, a red diced red onion. Just some raw diced red onion, only about a tablespoon. Just kind of get one out and dice it up and just, just sprinkle it over. Gives a really nice kind of purple, fresh kind of look as well. That's mm. another really good ingredient. Um, mm. Cherry tomatoes. Oh, um, yeah. Just a, just a handful of cherry tomatoes. Just cut them in half or into quarters. Um, and you can get the really nice ones. You can kind of get punnets with red and yellow and orange and kind of black tomatoes as well. Um, a few of them just sprinkled over a dish can offer some, offer, offer some wonderful cover as well. Mm. Um, another tip yeah another tip is also um, when you present stuff the dishes that you use are really important and um, I find in general so probably two tips is that you probably want to use a bigger dish than you think you need there's mm. nothing worse than a tiny bowl generally stuff squashed in um, particularly, particularly plates for example or bowls get wide rimmed bowls where you, ha- where you can and don't be scared of having spare space around the outside um, it kind of just kind of frames the dish a bit better as well. So aim for nice big rims where you can and uh, probably bigger bowls than you potentially need. Dude, I can totally attest to having like a bigger, deeper bowl, making your eating experience so much better. And when you see like things in that bowl, you're more excited to eat. Like, exactly. oh, 
Yeah, I okay, I agree. You're 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 telling us facts right now. This is I <laughs> like this is this is like I can just think about my own experience and go, wow, this is so true. Yeah. And when you sit in your dishes, I find um, generally there's a lot of dishes around that have got really complicated patterns and flowers and colours. Mm. Generally, there are exceptions, but generally I avoid those. Generally, mm. the three rules for me in terms of colours. Number one is a really just simple classic white. Mm-hmm. Like a simple, nice, big, wide, classic um, rimmed plate is a, is a good go-to, or like a noodle bowl. So simple white is really good. Um, light blue is quite a good colour for food. So any kind of light, tearly, kind of cyan, light blue mm-hmm. colours often work well as well. Um, and also kind of rustic brown colours, like your kind of your... Um, your tans and your kind of really dark browns and stuff. Mm. I find those three colours are kind of a good starting point as well. And if you go to some, I'm not sure what all the chains are in Australia, but generally some of your kind of your cheaper end stores can actually have some really good stuff in them. Dude, like, um, shout out Kmart. Like, Kmart, yep. So um, good. There's some really good stuff in some of those. Some really ugly stuff as well. <laughs> but if you get their simple stuff, um, it can work really well. And you, you can actually just get a few dishes or plates and bowls and um, you can kind of get your pantry full, your cupboard full of those can make a big difference, but not much money. Now, I want to ask you, because you're, you're sharing with us some incredible, amazing tips. Where has this information come from for you? Has it just been the experience of running the cafe and just learning it from scratch? Yeah, I think so. I don't know, but I've just kind of, always just kind of been a net. I've just, just kind of always worked. And also, yeah, when you're doing photography, you mm. just always just... You just, you know, you put a dish out and take a photo for a cookbook and you go, that just looks terrible. That is not cookbook worthy. So you just, just going through those years of struggling about trying to make things look beautiful. No, that plate looks terrible. No, that garnish looks terrible. Do it again. Just, just coming up with the general principles. I've kind of had to go through that, that pain of having to make things look beautiful that were ugly. Mm. Well, not ugly, but you know, that weren't look beautiful. Just, I think it's just that experience of, you know, and those, those times when you have deadlines in life, I've got to get a cookbook out by the end of next week. I need to get these things looking beautiful. Having that pressure and that tension forces you to think deep and kind of develop some principles that work. Oh, that's amazing. Speaking of which, I'm, I'm finishing cookbook number eight at the moment, and I need to have that finished by the end of August because it's going to arrive in time for Christmas. So I'm in that smoking busy getting this cookbook finished phase. So that's where I'm at the moment. And, you know, every night I'm stressing, what can I put in? How can I make this look beautiful? So that's, that's what I'm going through at the moment, which is quite exciting. Ah, oh, that's amazing. Now, hey, more tips on how to make our food beautiful? What do you reckon? Yep. So uh, next one is when you put it on the dish, don't press it down. Just let it kind of fall naturally. You kind of want to go for as much height as you can. Um, don't oh. don't kind of push it down or mound it out generally. Just let it fall down naturally on the plate and, and fall out. Don't try and move. Generally, don't try and move it around. And often I see people do that. I'm like, you, you kind of see people putting something on a plate and they want to kind of spoon it or, or move it. Generally how it falls naturally is usually a good starting point. So uh, mm. that's probably a good tip as well. Um, adding a lime or a couple of lemon wedges on the side. Just get a lime or mm. lemon, get some wedges, throw it on the side just to kind of give people the option to add some extra flavor, but also add a bit of extra green or yellow to make things look good. Mm. Uh, any kind of salads. Uh, when using lettuce and like mescal and those kind of things, you want them to be kind of wet. Um, so often give, just giving, you know, some lettuce, just a bit of a rinse and water, just kind of just zing, just bring them alive. So mm. don't be scared to put a bit of water on stuff, but make sure you shake it off. You don't want too much water in your salad. <laughs> yeah, sure. I also have a, a, a water sprayer, so just a normal spray bottle with water in it. And often if you put something on the table or a salad, just looking a little bit 
flat or dead, or it might have been out for say half an hour before you serve it. Just a couple of light sprays of water, just misting up the um, the vegetables, just makes everything just sparkle. Oh, so it's yeah. quite a good little tool to have in your cupboard as well. That's like it probably um, a lot of people have the experience of like you wash your car and like while it's wet, yeah. it looks so pristine. Exactly. And then yeah. it dries yeah, off and then it looks gross. Right. <laughs> but yeah, chuck some exactly. water on it. You know, people will eat it before it dries and it'll look beautiful. That's awesome. So throwing dressings on top as well, like having like a like pestos or a cashew cream mm. or a hummus or a tomato sauce or something, just drizzling it on top with a, with a spoon and and again, not just on the product, but on the plate as well, around the use of plate as well. So mm. putting some whites, and it's kind of contrasting color. So if, you, if your food looks dark, you know, throwing some white cashew cream on it will look really good. If it's really white, throwing something dark like a green pesto. Um, and for sweet things, I find a really good mixture is just a little mix of, um, um, not cacao, what's the other one? A carob, mm. carob powder, which is very dark. So about a teaspoon of carob powder and a little bit of water, and you can make yourself a little sauce, and you've got an instant, really dark brown thing that can just make a, d- a dessert just just go from average to good mm. with a bit of brown on it. So that's another wow. another thing to do as well. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, and also look at the colours. Look what what colours you got. What contrasting colours can you add? Um, if there's you know, think of the rainbow. You know what what if things look too green? Can I add red? Just look at contrasting colours. Forgot mm. something was light. Can I add something dark? And it's dark. Add something light. So that's you kind of put those through your head. So it's kind of, when you finish this, push it on the plate, and you're always thinking, from, yeah, from, first, from first from a taste point, when you finish a dish, taste it. Can I add something extra special to give this, this amazing flavor? And look at it and go, how can I make this look amazing? What do these little things kind of do? And often it's just a quick sprinkle over the top, literally 10 or 30 seconds to just throw something over it to, uh, to make it look super awesome. Mm. You go from regular to um, gourmet and everyone's happy. That's amazing. Exactly. And also, sometimes you put a dish, sometimes when a dish doesn't work out. So, for example, you might be doing a curry or a stew or something, and it ends up being really, really, really runny. So, just call it a soup. Just call it something different. It's all this context to how people start it. If you do try and do fritters or waffles and they break up, just call it a hash or a mash. So, just redefine what you call the dish. And then, uh, you know, if you've got these um, fritters that look terrible and manky and you're about to throw them out, put on a fr- on a plate, call it a hash spoon over some tomato sauce that you heard and you've got a dish that people are probably going to look and go, wow, this is really amazing. Wow. Oh, Jeremy, that is awesome. That's all the time that we have this morning for you to share with us incredible food tips. But thank you so much for coming on the show. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. We're about to have some more serious news this morning. Of course, when we have uh, Jeremy on the show, we have our sequence a little bit altered, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Because he's from to... New Zealand, and we don't hold that against him, but it changes our show. All right. <laughs> hey, let's have a, another question for the quiz. What did Moses tell the Israelites to tie on their hands and foreheads? 0491 is the number to call or text if you know the answer to that one. If you do, you go into the door to win the Revive Cafe Cookbook 3 and 4. That's actually an interesting question. It is an interesting question. I was just mulling that one over. Because I'm like, did he tell them? Like, he did tell them. I, I want to talk. The word, the word used in the King James Version is bind. Yes, bind. It's, it's same, bind. same in my Bible. So that's 
tie bind. But but are we talking literally? Nah, giving stuff away. What did Moses away, tell the away. Israelites to tie on their hands and foreheads? Zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. All right. Heading to some more serious news. Uh, New Anglican Church has just been formed. Uh, this uh, took place yesterday. It's led by the former Archbishop of Sydney, mm-hmm. uh, Glenn Davies. Mm. This group started drafting plans to create the new diocese early in 2021. Uh, it was registered with the Charities Commission in October 2021. So this has been in progress for, well, uh, uh, over a year now and has finally come to fruition. This is a result of the issue of same-sex marriage. So yeah. the Anglican Church, of course, supports same-sex marriage and is fully affirming of all of the different uh, LGBT plus practices mm. and ordains pastors, you know, within that within that framework. And, of course, there's a lot of conservative Anglicans who are like, no, nah, you know, we'd rather go with what the Bible says. Mm. And we feel that the church has drifted away from the Bible, and so they decided to form their own Anglican church. Mm. This was driven by the Anglican Church of Sydney, which historically is the only or the last bastion of low church Anglicans anywhere in the world. And historically is pretty much the only, like, evangelistic Anglican church. Yes, the only evangelistic Anglican church, the only growing Anglican church. That's right. I've been down there and and I was like, you know, walking to a big Anglican cathedral and it's like, wait, they run church here? Yeah, they actually use it. I'm like, wait. And they they preach sermons there and and they're quite evangelical. And I was like looking at like the walls and they have like the the pin-up boards and whatnot. It's like, wait, they they run programs? Like, yeah, I was just surprised because, you know, yeah, we're used def- to going into those big cathedrals, and they're just a tourist attraction. That's right, but no. So this is the uh, this is the Anglican Church there in Sydney. Uh, they umbrella under the umbrella of Gafcon, which is a conservative Anglican movement mm. that is not in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm. So, uh, Reverend Justin Welby, um, and it will, this will cover all of Australia. So they've called it the Diocese of the Southern Cross. Archbishop Glenn says that it will have a significant impact on the church in Australia and particularly on a number of the bishops of the Anglican Church in Australia because Mm. it is getting significant amount of support, Mm. which is fascinating. According to the charity register seen by uh, the the charity register, the Archbishop Archbishop Glenn, Tasmanian Minister Susan Willis and lawyer David uh, Baker from St. Jude's Anglican Church in Melbourne are the three board members that are kicking this off. And uh, Archbishop Glenn says, for those who cannot live under the liberal regime of a bishop, they can come and be thoroughly Anglican under a bishop. Mm. There you go. It's all happening. Kind of predictable. Uh, I think a lot of us saw that coming at some particular point, and now it has arrived. But interesting to see them officially making a break from the Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm. Okay, we did talk about Peter's home. That has been found. Yeah. Really? Maybe. <laughs> I'm always skeptical about these stories. Like, we found a biblical location. Oh, it's not where the Bible says it is. But... Particularly when it's the home of a peasant. Yeah. You know, to be very certain about the home of, you know, if we look at Australia, uh-huh. you know, you can find the home of, say, you know, John MacArthur or someone like that. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, this is this is John MacArthur's home. Mm-hmm. Because he was not a peasant. Mm-hmm. He was aristocracy and it was a big fancy place. Mm-hmm. When it comes to finding the home of a peasant, which is basically a hovel made out of stones, then you're really going to be that confident. Mm. 
Okay, so let's look at the evidence that they've come up with. This is a team of Israeli and American archaeologists who uncovered a 1,500-year-old inscription. Well, that's old. It's not Peter not, old. Not, not Peter old. <laughs> not 2,000 years old. Uh, on a centuries-old basilica near the Sea of Galilee that suggests that this was built over the home of the Apostle Peter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Greek inscription, uh, it speaks about the donor, being Constantine, the servant of Christ. So we know that Constantine, well, he didn't really convert to Christianity, he just made it the state religion mm-hmm. and supported a lot of these kinds of projects, uh, particularly in the land of Israel where he went and found you know, New Testament locations. And Well, his, his I think it was his wife or his mother did, went and found these New Testament locations and built churches over them. Mm. So he funded it even though he was still a pagan. But So it's got Constantine, the servant of Christ, then includes a petition for the intercession from the chief and commander of the heavenly apostles. Now, that's a term that is typically used by the Byzantine church to refer to the apostle Peter. Mm. And so because it says that on the floor, they've gone, aha, this is the home of Peter. Okay. So, you know, maybe... Maybe. It kind of goes a little bit like this. When they were looking for you know all of these different places to build churches, they would build churches over the spot where a significant event took place. So, for instance, where they believe that Jesus was born, you can go there today and you can find a church that is built over that spot. If you go to the place where Jesus was crucified, you can go there today, you'll find a church built over that spot. Mm. You know, And, and this, is, this is kind of the tradition that took place. A lot of this took place in the 4th century. Mm-hmm. This church was built in the 4th century. The purpose for doing so uh, was to create you know, pilgrimage sites, mm. this kind of thing, and to identify all of these different locations. But you know, this is the equivalent of us here in Australia now finding the site of a squatter mm. from the mid-1600s. Well, there was no squatters here in the mid 1600s, but as a peasant, yeah, uh, from the mid 1600s, a, 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 a poor fisherman mm-hmm. somewhere down on the coast from the mid 1600s, going, yeah, okay, that's the spot. We'll build a church there. Build a church there. Fifteen hundred years later, they find the ruins of that church, and they're like, aha, that must be the spot. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit like, yeah, maybe it's probably the town where he came from. Yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. more plausible, but the actual home. You're better off just to build a church over the entire town and then it's like, that, well, you've got it right. now. We're talking tenuous at best. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not super convinced on this. Uh, this also dates to a period where there was a massive politicisation of Christianity and uh, its consequent paganisation of Christianity. Mm. Hence, they have now made Peter, you know, this particular apostle who is the commander of the heavenly apostles. That's not true. That's not mm. found anywhere in the Bible. Mm. There's no evidence for that. Uh, anyway, the expedition was led by the Kinneret College in Israel and Nyack College in New York. So sometimes these guys get a little bit too excited, in my opinion, and want to have you know something a little bit too special attached to their name, and mm. so they become a little bit overconfident. Isn't that like what they should say? Research? Is we found a church that dates to the fourth century and has Constantine's name on it, and has a reference to someone who might be Peter on it. Yeah, which is... That's, that's actually which, true. Which is cool enough. 
That's very cool. Like, this is that is super cool. Incredible history. Yes. But they're like, no, Peter lived here. <laughs> <laughs> it would also be true to state that the builders may have believed that Peter lived there. Mm-hmm. Anyway. No, Lyle, it's Peter's house. Yes. <laughs> so this inscription was a part of the uh, mosaic on the floor of the church. Mm. The original goal was to find the city of Bethsaida, and it's much more likely that that is what they have found, but they have not actually determined that it is Bethsaida yet, so they don't have a, an inscription that says that it is Bethsaida. Mm-hmm. Bethsaida. But there's every possibility that it is Bethsaida. What's interesting is that you've got an 8th century book, this is about 400 years later, uh, about the travels of a bishop, Wilbold of Eichstadt in Bavaria, who says, And thence they went to Bethsaida, the residence of Peter and Andrew, where there is now a church on the site of their house. They remained there that night, and the next morning went to Chorazin, where our Lord healed the demoniacs. And so they're, you know, they're pilgrims, obviously, through the Bible lands, and as pilgrims they're talking about the different locations that they visited and referenced this particular church, which in that era was believed to be on the house of Peter. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.